Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, pet people, and welcome to the Pet Place Radio Show on KJAZZ 88.1 FM. I'm your host, Marie Hewlett, and I'm really excited about our guest lineup this morning. First up, we're going to find out about a lion cub that lived at the Plaza Hotel with a Russian princess, among other famous and wonderful pets that are memorialized forever at the only pet cemetery listed on the National Register of Historic Places. Ed Martin, the vice president of Hartsdale, will be stopping by shortly to tell the tales of these wonderful animals and the love they shared with their human families. Then, after our halftime break, Justin Silver, host of TV's Dogs in the City, will be sharing a few tidbits from his new book, The Language of Dogs. So sit and stay while we listen to a brief message from the station, and we'll be right back to give you a treat here on KJAZZ 88.1 FM. Welcome back. You're listening to the Pet Place Radio Show on KJAZZ 88.1 FM. I'm Marie Hewitt, and joining me now is Ed Martin, Vice President of Hartsdale Pet Cemetery. Welcome to the Pet Place, Ed. Hi. Thank you for having me. You know, I've been wanting to get you guys on the show for years, and I'm so excited that uh, you're finally available because this is a very, very cool subject. Your cemetery is actually the very first pet cemetery in our country. Is that correct? That's correct. We were started in 1896. Wow, and I know that there's a very touching story associated with that. Can you tell our listeners? Sure, of course. Um, the Hartsdale Pet Cemetery was never formally planned. It really evolved, and it all started with a simple act of compassion by a veterinarian named Dr. Samuel Johnson. And besides being a well-respected vet, Dr. Johnson was also one of the early promoters of the ASPCA. And the story goes that one day in 1896, a distressed woman walked into his office in Manhattan, and um, the woman's dog had just died, and she didn't want to dispose of her pet in the typical manner of the time, which essentially meant throwing your pet in the, in the trash. Mm. So instead, she wanted her dog to have a proper burial. Uh, however, the health laws uh, at the time prohibited pets from being buried in New York City. Wow. So with very little options, Dr. Johnson offered to bury her dog in an apple orchard at his summer home not far away um, in uh, the, tiny, the tiny hamlet of Hartsdale, which is in Westchester County. It's about 30 minutes north of Manhattan. Okay. And um, a short time later, Dr. Johnson was having a casual conversation with a newspaper reporter at the burial, and to his surprise, a short time later, uh, a story about the burial appeared in print, and almost immediately thereafter, Dr. Johnson's telephone began to ring with similar requests. Wow. And that's kind of how the cemetery started. Oh, my goodness. And so do we still have the opportunity to visit that very first grave? Well, in the early days, the you know the records are not as I said. The cemetery was never formally planned. Okay. So um, there are no real formal records in the beginning because they weren't even sure whether it was going to be you know a, a, a pet cemetery. It was just a, you know a, a compassionate act that he did. Okay. So um, it really wasn't until 1914 
that um, the records, you know, there was incorporation, there was deed restriction, all those formalities. However, you know, the, the earliest stone that survives is uh, one from um, 1899. Wow. That is very cool. And you're on the historical location list. What was involved in making that happen? <laughs> it was a very long process. Um, we were placed on the uh, National Reg- Register of Historic Places in 2012. Um, and um, it really was just, uh, it, you know, we, we applied. Uh, there was a very long application process um, that um, uh, our, we have a, a dedicated historian named Mary Thurston, and um, she spent uh, a year of her life um, completing this application. Wow. And we were fortunate enough to have been accepted, and we're right now we're the only pet cemetery to have been um, listed on that uh, register. Well, and it's well-deserved being the very first. Well, we're very proud of this place. It's very—it's a very special place. At least it is to us. I've seen some of the photos online, and I tell you, I look at all of those special memorial sites, and and I get teary-eyed almost immediately. I I saw one that looks like a a special little stone doghouse. I saw another one that looked like a a little crib that you might put a puppy or a kitten into. Do you still have a lot of those unique memorial stones at the they're, site? They're very heartfelt. Um, some of the, you know, uh, sculpture is not as prevalent as it used to be um, in, you know, it was probably at its height in the 1920s. Um, however, the sentiments really come through on, on the stones, and I think the reason for that is because, um, well, you know, you may be obligated to bury um, a human uh there is no obligation to bury a pet, and so people that are doing so are doing so completely out of love and free will. Okay, okay. So some of the markers may or may not even exist then. Right, right. Okay, I see. But I've seen the grounds as well, and they're absolutely gorgeous. Do you conduct tours? Uh, we um, we are starting to conduct tours. We have done a few in the past. Um, but we are doing um, a special one uh, coming up very soon. Uh, on Saturday, October 18th, we're going to be conducting a tour. Um, it's open to the public, and it's going to be held rain or shine, and it's going to be conducted by our historian, Mary Thurston. Uh, she actually lives in Texas. And she's coming up to, to do the tour. Oh, so cool. it should be very, very exciting, actually. I wish I was able to get there. I would love to go there for the tour, and I hope that becomes a a regular feature that you offer there. I don't know when I'm going to be able to get to New York, but it's definitely on my list of things to do. Well, you have an open invitation to come here, and I'd be happy (laughs) to give you a personal tour when you come up. (laughs) Oh, I'm so fortunate. I I feel very lucky. Can you tell me a little bit about a new book that you've written about the, the cemetery? Yes. Well, uh, I can't really take too much credit for being uh, new. Um, it actually is a book that um, my father, who is the director of the cemetery, uh, Edward Martin Jr., he wrote a book about the cemetery back in 1997. Okay. And so um, at the time, there was no Internet publishing, so we had to order 5,000 copies of that book. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so we, 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 you know, when we started... Uh, depleting the supply, it became necessary to you know do a revision of that book, and a lot of things has have changed since then. Most notably, being listed on the National Register of Historic Places. Sure. So um, I basically you know took his book and did a revision of that, and um, it really was a labor of love. It really you know when you enjoy something uh, so much, it really the book really just writes itself. And there are a lot of photographs inside the book. There are a lot of photographs. Um, it unfortunately it's black and white because that was the most. Um, 
you know, cost-effective way to do it. Uh, but the pictures were beautiful in the wow. book. I just wish they were color. <laughs> well, maybe in the future. Maybe. <laughs> and I know that the book also talks about your famous war dog memorial. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yep, I sure can. Um, the war dog memorial was dedicated in 1923 to honor military working dogs that served in World War One, And uh, it's the first known memorial of its kind that we're aware of. Um, and it, it, it's a bronze rendering of a Red Cross dog from World War One, mounted on top of a six-foot, ten-ton granite boulder. Wow. Uh, it was funded by public contribution at an estimated cost of about $2,500, which was a sizable amount of money at that time. Oh, sure. And it's currently listed in the Art Inventories Catalog of the Smithsonian Institute. And oh. it's a national, oh, I'm sorry, it's a it's a local landmark in, uh-huh. in Westchester County, which is where we are. Okay, that sounds really cool. And... There are so many stories associated with the cemetery. I know that there's one that has to do with a lion cub who lived at the Plaza Hotel with a Russian princess. What's, yeah, what's that's, that all about? that's probably the uh, most unique story here, uh, which a lot of people like to hear about. And it's it, it's in the book, that story. Uh, I'd be happy to share that with you today. Oh, please. Um, the, the, the lion cub's name was Goldfleck, also known as the lion cub General Sickles. And um, sickles. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the the lion cub was buried here in 1912, and uh, the story goes as follows: um, the lion cub Goldfleck was the pet of Princess Vilma Parley. I'm probably mispronouncing the name, but I'm um, doing the best I can on that. Um, the princess was born in Hungary in the mid 1860s, and she was married to a Russian a Russian prince for a brief period of time. And she reportedly had an income of a million dollars a year, which was quite a, about a, a lot of money at that wow. time. Um, she was a renowned um, portrait artist and an animal lover. And in 1908, she visited the U.S. with her menagerie of pets, and she stayed at the Plaza Hotel <laughs> after being turned down by the Waldorf Astoria with so many pets. Oh, my. <laughs> so she, she traveled well. Um, when she arrived in New York, her animal companions included dogs, cats, a guinea pig, an owl, two small alligators, believe it or not, and also, believe it or not, a bear. (laughs) (laughs) And they all slept on the foot of her bed. (laughs) After visiting um, the Ringling Brothers Circus, um, she wanted to add a lion cub to her menagerie of animals, and so she approached Ringling to offer to purchase the lion cub, but he he turned her down. And um, she was undeterred and persisted with the plan. So she approached a Civil War hero named General Daniel Sickles, whom she had just completed a portrait of. Okay. And, and she was smart enough to know that nobody could turn down a great war hero. Who, and by the way, he was now in his 90s, so he's a very you know distinguished, well-respected man. Okay. Um, and the ruse worked exactly as planned. Uh, the Ringlings were so honored to give the lion cub to Sickles that they named <laughs> him General Sickles, uh, but they called him Goldfleck. <laughs> okay. Um, did the they princess, ever find out that the princess actually ended up with the cub? Uh, they probably did later <laughs> on, but um, I, that, that's, that I don't know, but I'm sure they did find out. They probably weren't happy about it. Um, the princess took Goldfleck to the plaza uh, to live with her, uh, where he had his own private trainer and his own separate room. And um, there actually was a little incident that happened. You know, imagine it was a lion. So um, ate, ate her the, next door neighbor. Well, no. So what happened was, I guess you know, people were very curious about this lion. So there was, you know, I guess you'd call it poorly timed flash photograph that scared oh. him, and so he raced out of the room and down a public hallway, which caused a panic in the hotel. I but, bet. Um, wow. 
But with a, a piece of raw meat, they were able to lure him back to his suite and all end it well without anybody getting hurt. And oh um, really not too much else is known up until the time of his burial then. Um, he became ill and died in 1912 for really reasons that are unknown. So um, the princess really didn't have him for a very long time. And I guess in hindsight, uh, the ringlings were probably right. Uh, they Goldfleck would have been better off with them than in 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 her hands. But again, I, I don't. We don't know the reason why Goldfleck died. But um, she held a formal wake for him, with Goldfleck lying in state, surrounded by flowers and his toys and dishes. Wow! And um, he was buried at Hartsdale Pet Cemetery, as I said, in uh, in 1912. And oh, so wow. that is by far the most unique pet that we have buried here. Well, I hope that our listeners get a hold of your book. And where can they find it again? Uh, they can go to our website, uh, www.petsem.com. Uh, it's also available on Amazon.com, uh, okay. and it's called The Peaceable Kingdom in Harchdale. Wonderful. It's It sounds like it's filled with great stories, and I'm so glad you were able to come down to the Pet Place today and share a few with us. Thank you so much for having me as your guest. We need to take a quick break now, but we'll be right back with dog trainer Justin Silver after a message from KJAZZ 88.1 FM. Welcome back to the Pet Place Radio Show on KJAZZ 88.1 FM. I'm Marie Hewlett, and with me now is Justin Silver. Good morning, Justin. How are you? Good morning. Thank you. Good to be with you. I understand that you are a very well-known dog trainer and host of a TV show called Dogs in the City. Tell me about that. Yeah. Um, well, I hosted the show. Uh, this was um, two seasons back on CBS, which then moved to TVGN, um, which was a pretty cool experience where they pretty much just followed me around while I'm working and training dogs in New York, and uh, which has now expanded to California and around the country since wow. the attention of that show and has led to uh, some other great opportunities like the uh, the book that's sitting on your desk, which we'll be talking about, uh-huh. um, called The Language of Dogs, which is uh, the name of my company. And oh, yeah, very cool. So it's all, all dogs all the time. Very nice. And I know that you have a background in stand-up comedy, too. How does that all relate to dog training? Well, it's interesting. I um I was do I've been doing I was doing stand up comedy for a number of years in New York City and I'd get home and you know, late at night, you know, you come you come off the stage and there's a huge rush and I'd come home and you're just kinda of depressed and nothing was on but those depressing animal commercials and <laughs> so I started adopting and fostering dogs and I always just had really difficult dogs, just like uh you know, really hard luck cases and sort of had to figure out the hard way of how to straighten them out, which was sort of my which is sort of my 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 learning experience as I write about in my book into how to train dogs and um a few years after I started doing that I I created a charity called Funny for Fido which is like comic relief but for dogs it's, it's oh, some of the that biggest is comics in the wonderful. country. Wow. Yeah, 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 it's great. Colin Quinn and Amy Schumer and just some of the biggest comics in the country all get together and we we do these big benefits and all the money goes to the rescue shelters. So for me, sort of in a way the the whole entertainment and animals thing has always been they 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 there's always been sort of a um an intersection between those two things in my life. And so when, you know, CBS asked me if I wanted to host a show about dogs, it's sort of like, I've been hosting shows about dogs, so <laughs> I'm ready to go. So, you know, and for me, you know, as far as just, as far as when I'm doing training sessions with people and much in the way the book was written, it's, I mean, you've been, I know you've, 
you've got it recently and you've just been thumbing through it, but it's done very conversationally and, and it's meant to bring a lot of levity to the situation. And even in the most hard luck situations that people are facing, if you can keep a lot of levity in the sessions, then people are excited and enthusiastic about working through them as opposed to, uh, um, you know, attacking these situations with a bit of a heavy heart. And yeah. that's always been that's always been the way that I like to do it. I like to keep things light. I like to keep things fun. And I like to keep training um, a fun thing because that's why you get dogs in the first place is to interact with them and to... Absolutely. To it breaks my heart when people get dogs and then just stick them out in the backyard and, and then complain that their yeah. dogs are causing problems like barking too much or digging or chewing. Yeah, they're like kids. Yeah. Yeah, it's like saying, you know, it's like, it's like you know, it's like if, you know, they, they, they only learn, and what I always teach them is they're only going to do what you explain to them to do. They're only going to, they're always, they're barometers, and they're going to do whatever you're explaining them to do. And you're always giving them direction, whether it's directly or inadvertently through your behaviors. So, you know, not teaching a kid that he has a curfew is teaching him that he can stay out all night. You know, te- mm-hmm. throwing a dog in the backyard and letting him bark is teaching him that it's okay to just run around and bark. You have, right. you have to provide them with structure and instruction the same way you would a kid. I mean, probably not as difficult as a child, as a human child, but there's a lot of uh, similarity there. And the reason they're barking outside is because they want to be inside with the family, interacting. They don't want to be abandoned, essentially, and left no, in exile. They're, uh, no, they're, they're, you know, there's this sort of whole thing where, you know, the anthropomorphism, the anthropomorphism of animals, which is like, you know, they certainly need, don't need to be wearing little shoes and little hats. <laughs> However, they do have a place in the family structure since they've been domesticated because for the most part, dogs are not going to be called upon, you know, working dogs are in the minority. You know, they're not going to be called upon to herd sheep or to, you know, apprehend criminals or to, you know, go deliver messages from boats mm-hmm. as the Portuguese water dog that is sitting by my feet would, <laughs> would, would be doing, you know, <laughs> a century ago. Yeah. But uh, they do need a place in the family and to know what their role is. And if you're a pregnant woman, you know, if I mean, sorry, if you're, if you're a woman with a newborn baby and a stroller, your dog's job, so to speak, with quotes, is to walk politely alongside that stroller. And they mm-hmm. need to know that that's what their structure is. And I try to tell people that... You can incorporate this sort of work-reward relationship, meaning that they sort of earn their keep, so to speak, um, just in the everyday things you do in your house. So, like, for example, you know, my dog will always carry my breakfast sandwich, you know, home from the deli in the morning. And then, you know, just sort of being my partner in crime throughout my day becomes her job. And she's always eager to listen to me. And that's what earns her affection and her praise and her, you know, spot on my couch next to me when I'm watching the Giants game. And so I try to show people how to do this and how to have this relationship with their animals. Because, you know, people who have, you know, canine cops with their dogs, those dogs usually don't have behavioral problems. Right. Um, but I show people how to do this in, in, in the everyday, whether, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, if you're a busy family with a few kids to look after, you know, you can obvi- you can absolutely give your dog a job within that structure. And so, and they want a job framework, excuse because me. they get bored if they don't have a job. Yeah. They're, they're, I mean, they're bred, they're bred essentially to work. I mean, and, and they're bred to take cues from us and they're constantly looking about what they should or should not be doing in any given scenario. Mm-hmm. I always like, you know, when people say, you know, my dog barks like crazy when company's coming, it's like, you know, the dog will let out a bark when they hear that doorbell and they're basically saying, Hey, someone's here, someone's here, someone's here. Mm-hmm. And the big mistake people make is, you know, they, exi- they, they, they start barking back at the dog. They go, stop it, stop it, stop it. <laughs> and then the doorbell now equals... <laughs> You know, we all bark and we all go crazy. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with the dog letting out that initial bark. Like, 
woof, 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 somebody's here. And then, you, you know, what I try to tell people to do is the way to curb barking at the door is to give them a job and show them what they're supposed to be doing in that circumstance. So when they right. bark, I thank them for barking. I'm like, good boy, thank you for alerting me. Now I want you to sit here, I want you to stay, I want you to wait while I get the door, and then I show them how to behave, which may take a little re- bit of repeti- repetition and a little bit of drilling. But that's all they're doing anyway. Their drives are, you know, in that, in that, in that circumstance, their drive is up and they're looking to interact. And, and one of the things I teach in this book is how to assess your dog's drives, desires, and, and motivators and use those things to actually get them to do the things that you want them to do. Because okay. when, a dog is, when a dog is jumping on company or when a dog is barking at a doorbell, they're excited, they're high-driven, they're looking to interact. Now, that interaction may not be the one that you want, but still, they're giving you energy. They're giving you, and at that point is when you're there to redirect them because they, they don't care. They're only jumping on the company because you haven't given them an alternative of what to do. Justin, do you so, find it harder think, to train the humans than it is to train the dogs? Because they have to uh, learn what to do. <laughs> well, the, here's why it's harder for me to train the human. Here's why it's harder to train the human, not the dog. The, the, the human, you're teaching the human how to speak dog. You're teaching them how to speak that language. So when I go in a session, I can get the dog to do whatever I want it to do. And it's sort of like, but I don't want you to be relying on me, which is exactly right. the reason I wrote this book. I wrote mm-hmm. this book to basically, I'm going to teach you who had a lifetime as opposed to giving you a fish and just filling your belly. Absolutely. I want people to walk away from sessions with me and from reading this book knowing that they're the trainer. They're the one who has to learn how to communicate with their dog and make the decisions of what they want their dog to be doing in any given circumstance. They're not it's not my dog and when I walk out of the when I walk out of the room on a training session it's like that has to last. So the difficulty, and it's not really a difficulty at this point because I've been doing it for so long, but the trick is really to sort of work through the dog owner almost by remote to get them to train the dog. So I may take the leash and, I may, and I'll give examples and I'll show them how to do this first, but then I, right away you're going to take the leash and you're going to be the one to do that, which is, you know, that's empowering for people. I mean, that's what, that's what people want. They feel like they, they, in, in this day and age people want to know how to, not just how. Okay. And do you find that some people just want it to happen overnight and and give up or become frustrated yeah. if they don't see results right away? The the people that are that, the people that will send their dog away to a training facility and be like, oh, my dog has all these issues in the house. I'm going to send them away to a center and let them train them. It's sort of like, you know, that that's equivalent to a parent who's just very hands-off with their kid and wants someone else to discipline their kid. It's like, well, that's great. Then the dog is going to listen to that person. That dog's never going to listen to you in the environment where that problem is taking place. Mm-hmm. So I think that a lot of people, you know, there's sort of like a screening process even when I do training sessions with people. And um, it's it's uh, a lot of people want you to just, program their dog like you're programming their cable box and then hand them the remote and it doesn't work that way you're building a relationship together and the dog's behavior is contingent upon the messages that you're giving that dog constantly throughout its life so there, it, it's, it's useless for for you know uh, someone other than the dog's owner to be training that dog and i find the people that want to do it that way it's sort of like you're not really the person that i'm I'm looking to work with anyway, and I wrote a book that was specifically for people who want these tools for themselves. I mean, it's the best of everything I know, and it's taught in a way where it teaches you how to observe your dog, because you're ultimately the one that knows it best. You're ultimately the one who's going to be able to communicate with the best, and you're the one that it wants to interact with the most. Mm -hmm. So I wrote something that was basically like, hey, here's how you are the best trainer now, and and give you the tools to do that. So yeah, I do find that I get both, but I'm only really working with the... uh, I'm only working with the latter rather than the former. I guess it really frustrates me because the kind of people who give up so quickly are the kind of people who also end up turning their dogs over to a shelter 
or worse, just you know, yeah. dumping it somewhere and right. hoping somebody else takes care of it. And I just wish yeah, there was a way to get, get through those people, through to those people and say, hey, it's up to you. And this dog will become the dog of your dreams if you just invest the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, it's like I pull all my dogs are dogs that I've pulled out of hard luck scenarios, out of shelters. And it's like, you know, I love I'm like a guy who likes to find old cars <laughs> in rundown garages and be uh-huh. like, let me see what the potential of this thing is and then shine it up. And everyone's like, oh, look at that. Look at that. Look what that thing can do. <laughs> you know, all my dogs are really all my dogs are started off from really difficult scenarios and, and, and they're the best trained dogs at myself or that anybody knows because I work with them constantly and it's just it's a pleasure to be with them and they're the dog that everybody wants around and you know people raise their hand when I'm going out of town to see if they can watch them and it's so it's got really nothing to do with you know whether you get the dog at a shelter or you buy the dog it's got nothing to do with that I mean they're con- they're basically saying like what do you want me to do now absolutely you know, Justin you, we have just a few seconds left and I want to make sure our listeners know where to get your book so let's give that out really fast oh. Well, it, you know, I, I'm I'm very interactive with with all my fans on all my social media, which is I am Justin Silver, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And then my book is available wherever books are sold. But you could also go directly to my website, which is thelanguageofdogs.com. Um, check it out; it is written for all of you, and uh, it is very empowering and teaching you how to walk down the road of happy destiny with your dog. Thank you so much. And we need to take our last break of the morning, but when we return, be ready for Pet Place news and events here on KJAZZ 88.1 FM. We're back on the Pet Place Radio Show. I'm Marie Hewitt, and it's time for Pet Place News and Events. I got this up a little late on the Pet Place calendar, but October 8th was Pet Obesity Awareness Day. Hopefully you all celebrated by having a great workout with your pet. But actually, the whole month of October is being observed as Canine Fitness Month, which means that you should research what a proper and healthy diet is for your pet and map out a good course of training that will keep him and you in peak condition. We want our furry companions to live long and healthy lives, and this is the best way to do it. So enjoy Canine Fitness Month together and make it a lifelong project. Well, that's all for me today. Remember... Pets need love and a home, too. We'll be back next weekend with more of the Pet Place here on KJAZZ 88.1 FM. I'm Marie Hewitt. Please spay or neuter your pets and have a wonderful day. (laughs) 